Well, Merry Christmas to you all. It's good to see all of you here this morning. I bring you greetings from the free state of Florida. We are almost entirely maskless, and what a joy that is, except when you have to get on a plane to come here. It was interesting. I was on a plane with my daughter Lisa, and we were coming back, and we were sitting about middle ways through the uh, seating of this particular plane, and there was some commotion in the back, and so this particular airline flight attendant said, oh, there's someone there who doesn't want to wear his mask, and so we're having to deal with that, and he has also brought on some peanuts with him, and there is a mother and a daughter sitting right next to him, and she's allergic to the peanuts. So we're looking for someone who might go back there and sit in those two seats on the last seats on the plane, and Lisa and I said, we'll do it. I like peanuts. <laughs> so we went back there, and he was sitting there, and by the time we'd gotten back there, he'd written a note on his mask that said uh, something like, uh, masks not needed. And so we got in to the row, and he was sitting on the aisle, and so I said, hey, do you have any peanuts? <laughs> Just to try to break up the uh, seriousness of the moment. And uh, I saw the captain who was at the front of the airplane, and... and uh, there was a lady who came down and escorted him out. And I, as he was leaving, I said, hey, leave the peanuts. <laughs> and uh, I think everybody was uh, seeing the uh, moment in a little bit more of a funny light, which is good because it's obviously very serious. And so we, uh, we are in very strange times, very strange indeed. But... We are here nonetheless, and uh, we praise the Lord for the opportunity to be with you. I was so grateful over the last several months for the opportunity in this transition with Dr. Paul Twist coming and being the new teaching pastor here at Bethany Bible Church, and I'm very grateful that the Lord has made this transition so very calm because often Churches don't experience such a thing, and uh, it's also wonderful to be able to be with you next Lord's Day to hear him preach in the morning and then do a little bit of an installation service in the evening, and I'm glad to be a part of that. I mean, what a wonderful transition that you can be able to do that and participate in, in that, and nobody's mad about anything. We are very, very grateful for that. I'm also grateful for uh, the myriad of men who are very, very dear friends of mine, all of them, who uh, preached in the last, oh, I think almost two and a half months, maybe even three months, uh, as we needed to do those kinds of things because of my departure to Florida and Paul's already committed schedule. So this is, uh, this is a wonderful thing. I hope you enjoyed all of those messages. Uh, I was able, because of the, the time lag, uh, to be able at about 1.30 my time, uh, to get online and to watch all of the messages. 
and, and they were wonderful. And I thank the Lord for all of those brothers who came. As I said, they're all very dear friends of mine. And I just wanted to introduce you to all my friends. <laughs> this morning, I want to bring a message that I've actually stole, stolen the title from a book, a book that I hold in my hand by Rebecca McLaughlin called Is Christmas Unbelievable? Now you see how tiny this is, this is why I wanted to bring it up to you. You see how tiny this book is. You could read it, I think as I did, in maybe 20 or 30 minutes and it answers four questions in answer to that question title is Christmas believable? And these questions are as follows. Was Jesus even a real person? Can we take the Gospels seriously? How can you believe in a virgin birth? And why does it matter? This is a great little uh, stocking stuffer, and if you've already done that, then uh, just do it again for New Year's or something. Uh, this is a fine, fine book, and I'm thinking, of course, about births these days. All of us who have large families are always so excited when we hear about births coming, and uh, given that this is Christmas Advent season, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, I begin with a quotation from this book by Rebecca McLaughlin. And it is as follows. She writes, I don't know how you think about the Christmas story. The story of the infant son of God, cradled in a manger, but born to save the world. Sounds about as far-fetched as Doctor Who. Messenger angels, a virgin giving birth, a guiding star. Can anyone too old to believe in Santa really be expected to believe such things? Well, then, of course, she goes on in the book to explain exactly why. McLaughlin, in this very wonderful book, I think gives solid evangelistic, apologetic, and biblical reasons to believe what Christmas Advent season is all about and why. Placing our confidence, our trust, our faith completely in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And for our purposes this morning, as we look to God's Word for even a further substantiation of both the purpose and the meaning of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. You remember... When I was here last time and preached, we were in Psalm 89. <clears throat> I've already, in years past, preached Psalm 90, and I want to go to Psalm 91. And I don't want you to forget something. Even though we're in the Old Testament, and even though we're in Psalm 91, that doesn't explicitly give the name of Jesus in this psalm, of course. I don't want you to forget Luke 24, 44 in our New Testaments that says, by Jesus himself to the disciples after his resurrection from the dead, these words, 
These are my words, Jesus says, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And as I said, even though Jesus is not explicitly mentioned here, there are many, many psalms, and I believe this to be one of them, that certainly points in his direction. A fulfillment, as it were, in some way or shape or form. And because, my dear friends, the key to understanding the meaning of this psalm is to see it in a perspective of what we might call salvation history. Salvation history. It could be something like this. If I were to step away from the pulpit and I were to step over here, and if, of course, my going from my right to my left, you seeing me go from your left to your right, this is salvation history. This is the creation of the world. This is God miraculously, out of nothing, creating the world as we know it. And of course, sin invading the world. And then as you move in terms of salvation history, as you and I are reading our Bibles, we're seeing some of the storyline of our Bibles because we see the sin that comes into the world. We see that sin is not only affecting the cosmos, But of course, in man and woman and child, the sinfulness of their lives is affecting everything. Not just themselves, but everyone around them. And that sinfulness, the sin problem, needs an answer. And that answer, of course, is salvation. But of course, that salvation, at least in the person and work of Jesus Christ is not revealed to us until the New Testament. However, there are pointers, there are salvation history points that give us a sense that God from eternity past has a plan. And that plan moves us through what we call in those early days the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then also Joseph and the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's salvation history. That plan is going to come through those men whom God created from Abraham going out of Ur of the Chaldeans and settling, of course, in a place that we now know as the Holy Land. And this was God's call upon his life. And God promised to bless him. God made a covenant with him. And God not only did that with Abraham, of course, but he did it with David, King David. And with David, God made a promise, a covenant, that he would bless mankind, both Jews and Gentiles, and that he would do it through David's line. And so David's line, even long after David's own death, seeing corruption in the grave, gave us a sense that there was someone who was greater than David. And that someone we know is our Lord Jesus Christ. Hence, Christmas Advent. Jesus comes into the world. And as we move past the intertestamental period into the period where John the Baptist is born, Jesus Christ 
is born. Jesus Christ begins to teach and preach the gospel, the good news that he is the savior of the world, that he in fact is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, the yes and amen of Jesus Christ coming into the world to be the world's savior. And of course, we see in the gospels and in the epistles and in the book of Revelation, which was read to you this morning, at least a portion. And these things are showing us what we might call the end of salvation history. And if you follow me from your left to your right, you're going to see that there is a plan that was orchestrated in the mind of God for which both the Old and New Testaments have a very, very prominent theme of salvation deliverance through the Messiah to come, whom we now know, praise God, that you and I are on this side of the cross, that we know that it is the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus the Nazarene. And so when you and I read our Bibles, and we're going to read Psalm 91 in a moment, we're going to see that there are things that look forward to the person of God's Messiah, the, the Messiah of Israel. And then we're going to see in our Bibles things that look backward to the cross and, of course, forward to the time that's even yet future to you and to me. And that is the end of all salvation history where we go into eternity. Now, what I've just described in a few minutes is a way of detailing the entire message of the Bible. Through all of those books, 39 books of the old, 27 books of the new, there's a, there's a tapestry, there's a thread. There's a way of seeing it and understanding it in a way that's glorious. And Psalm 91 is one of those pieces of the puzzle. Look down at your Bibles with me and follow along as I read Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up 
lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation, my deliverance. Now, if you're like me, you read the Psalms quite frequently. In fact, I just picked up a book. It's on its way. Shock of all shocks. (laughs) On the Psalms to be read in 30 days. I love the Psalms. It's quite obvious. I've been preaching through them now for several years. And while they are a great comfort to our souls, while they are Israel's songbook, while they are meditations and prayers, they also represent what you and I could call and what I've alluded to already, and that is salvation history. Now, I don't know with precision, with certainty, and with concreteness all of the references in Psalm 91 and to what they might be referring. Some of them, of course, could be very generic. Some of them, however, could be very particular. In fact, I know one of them that is very particular because it's quoted in the New Testament. But one thing I do know is that whether or not we're able to understand it with all the clarity that we could muster, here's what we do understand. It's pointing to Israel's Messiah. Oh yes, it's a, it's a great consolation for us. It's something that will help us in our daily lives. If you were to read the Psalms and you would come across Psalm 91 and you'd read it and you'd be encouraged. But if you're like me, you don't want to just be encouraged. You want clarity in terms of its meaning. You want to read, that is, for comprehension. And so, my dear friends, I think one of the keys to the meaning of this psalm may actually be our ability to determine who in this psalm is actually being referred to. I mean, you actually have first and second person being referred to throughout this psalm. A you, a a he, a a they. Uh, Who is this being referred to. Is it David? Could be. You say, well, it doesn't have a title. It doesn't have a superscription. It doesn't say, like some of the other psalms, most of the other psalms, this is from David or this is from Asaph. It it doesn't have a title. It is interesting, however, that the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint or Septuagint actually attributes this to David. May or may not be the case, we don't know. Perhaps it is a psalm of David or referring to David in some sense. And if so, it certainly ought to in some way, somehow refer to David's greater son. Or often in the psalms, though they were the songs of Israel, the songbook of the delivered, the songbook of all Israel could be referring to all Israel, all Israel collectively. Or it could be a particular psalm 
that is only reflective of a particular time in Israel and their history. It could be referring only to a few Israelites in that time frame and what they were going through. In fact, when I just read it, there are certainly areas of great perplexity, potentially great harm. So it could be referring just to a period in a few of the Israelite historical sketches as we know it. And as I've been alluding, I think it might ultimately, when you think about it in another way, since we have the fuller revelation of the New Testament, it could be a psalm for which we could contemplate that all believers are assumed. All believers. Because even though we do live on this side of the cross, and even though we are reading Psalm 91, we could say as Christian scripture, what do we get out of it? You ever notice that when you read the Psalms and you read something or maybe even some portion of any part of the Old Testament and you read it and you say, well, that is just fine history. That is just a really good point for them, for their lives, for what happened to them. But pray tell, what kind of application is this for me? How does it relate to me? Where am I in this? How can I learn and grow? How can I apply this Old Testament truth? Well, I think you and I can apply it because in one sense, maybe though it wasn't to us, it most certainly is for us. It most certainly is. In fact, if you want to Label, we could say this is a part of salvation history or this is a part of what we call biblical theology. Biblical theology. In fact, we could call it a Christological biblical theology. This is, this is somehow pointing in some way, some fashion, some shape, some form to the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 91, it's some measure of a sweep of Israel's history. Pestilence, disease, enemies, that's a part of Israel's history and it could be for us something that we know that Jesus will one day conquer everyone and everything. That's what it's pointing to, it has to. I mean, this idea of biblical theology, we're talking about the doctrine of the Messiah of Israel. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the study, the teaching, the unfolding, the unraveling, the presentation of Israel's Messiah. And this morning, I want to give you three ways as we move through this, three outline points, uh, three principles, and I think they're very easy, and I think they're very applicable to all of us, and the first one is this. Let's call it security and safety. Security and Safety. Now, I know that you and I don't care anything about security and safety. There's nothing that's going to get us. There's nothing there's, that's going to come against us. We're totally secure and completely safe. We say tongue-in-cheek, we all need security and safety. We all need it. And how do you have it? Well, I suggest that this psalm is teaching us that you have it 
this security and safety by being in a trusting relationship through the person and work of Israel's Messiah. Security and safety, I'll say it again, is only ours when we are in a trusting relationship by way of the person and work of Israel's Messiah. Look at verses 1 and 2, and I'll begin to show you from Psalm 91 how this is the case. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, the first thing you and I need to do in Psalm 91 is to try to figure out who's the he who. Who he? Who who is that? He who dwells. Well, you could say it's, it's all of Israel or a portion of Israel who needed Psalm 91 or had Psalm 91 written for them or to them and they were singing it maybe as a lament, maybe as a prayer, maybe as a hope, maybe as a, a, a reaching out to God for the help that must come from him if they're going to survive. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now that, my friends, is applicable to all of us, isn't it? The person who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of Almighty God. Verse 2, I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress. Now you know where I got my outline points. Refuge, security, fortress, safety. There it is. And and to whom does this apply? I tell you at the end of verse two, it is this. My God in whom I, what? Trust. And by the way, the Hebrew construct, construct of this particular verb Continual trusting. Not just saying, well, I trust God, I trust the Lord, I'm going to trust that he's going to give me security and safety, and then you go about your lives just believing, thinking, hoping that God's going to do what I need him to do when the moment comes, when there's security and safety needed. But I'll live the rest of my life when security and safety are here, however I want, trusting him or no. No, this is, a, this is a continual trust. My God in whom I continually trust. That's why part of that outline point is security and safety by being in a trusting relationship through the person and work of Israel's Messiah, through Jesus Christ. We know him. We're on this side of the cross. We know his name, Jesus of Nazareth. They did not. But we know who he is. We know he's God in human flesh. We know he's the most high. We know that we are safe and secure in the shadow of Jesus, the almighty one. And we say to Yahweh, Jesus is Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I continually trust. You say, now, wait wait a second, wait a second. All that you just said about Jesus, all you just said about the Savior, all of that is sort of bound up in verses 1 and 2. I say yes. 
Now, you don't get it if you were reading like those Israelites in the moment or singing this song or praying this as a prayer. You don't know if you're reading it for the first time, and it was intended to them, of course, to be read the first time, but it's also Christian scripture, and it's also for us. They didn't know that it was Jesus, but we now know that it's Jesus. In fact, we, we know that even by what the Old Testament promises. Turn back in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, this is going to be a, a little teaching time to show us, again, that salvation history. Remember, I stood back and you were looking at me going from your left to your right in the annals of time, the annals of history. And one of those epic moments was in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this was a promise of God given through the prophet Nathan to David. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 8 says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. This is Nathan now the prophet telling David what God wants him to know. I took you, speaking the prophet Nathan by God to David, I, God, took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. In other words, you're going to be a king, and you're going to be one of the great kings of all the earth. Verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And you and I say, well, hang on a second. Because they're still, even to this day, constantly under attack. Yes, that's true. So that means that this promise is still to come in its absolute fullness. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Well, they're, they're still doing it. Verse 11, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. Okay, that's another part of salvation history. You remember all the judges of Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And of course, we ultimately know that his son Solomon built a house and built a house for the Lord. So David was taken care of, and then there was a house built for the Lord. David wasn't going to do it, but Solomon had the privilege of doing it. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is David now looking at his own death, I will raise up your offspring after you. And who might that be? Well, someone's going to say Solomon. And it was. But there's someone who's greater than Solomon. How do I know that? He says, well, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's the next word? Forever. Forever. That's got to be beyond even Solomon. Forever. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And we know, of course, that's some who are in David's line who continue to serve as kings from David's own body, and they are men, mere men, and they will sin, and they will be disciplined. Is that not also a prescription of showing Israel's history? Weren't there a lot of kings, kings of Israel, who were terrible and wicked? And they were disciplined. But, verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him, from David, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house, notice this magnanimous, just life-altering, eternally altering statement, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now that, my friends, that last line has to be more than just David and those who came through his body because every man who came through that body, save one, will die. Their bodies will decay. You say, well, won't they one day be resurrected? Yes, but resurrected human beings who had sin in their lives can't qualify for an established kingdom forever and ever and ever. So do you know the plan of salvation history? Well, I know this, the plan of salvation history is going to include, turn just a couple of psalms over to Psalm 89 that we covered last time I was here. It has to include this. It has to include God's own truth-keeping. I mean, it's one thing to say your throne's going to be established forever and you're going to be in charge, whoever this David's greater son might be, and it's going to be forever. Yeah, but what happens if such and such comes? And what happens if Israel is faithless? And what happens if this or that does not come to pass? Are you sure? Is this true? Will it be established forever? Yes. Look at Psalm 89, verse 20. I have found David my servant, God speaking. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. Verse 24, my faithfulness or my truth and my steadfast love shall be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Verse 28, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Verse 34, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Think of that 2 Samuel 7 passage through Nathan's lips to David's ears. Think of that there. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. This is a covenant-keeping God. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon it, be, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. 
No wonder verse 52 says, blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. Let it be true, let it be true. I tell you, my friends, these psalms are pointing something to something that's greater than what we suppose. Certainly are. You say, well, wait, 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 wait. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 91. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness or his truth is a shield and buckler. Does that mean that God can be trusted each and every day of our lives? Yes, because likened as a metaphor to a bird who is strong, verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions. You're going to be safe under his wings. That's where you're going to find refuge. His truth or his faithfulness is a shield and buckler. So just ask yourself about history right now. Just ask yourself when you get on a plane. Is this bird going to land? What if it doesn't? I know you've had the thought, so have I. You get in your car. You drive. Will I be safe at my arrival? Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. What about a disease? A pestilence? A virus? Will I survive it? He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His truth is a shield and buckler. You say, for me physically? Perhaps so. But even if it's not your physical safety and security, it will be your eternal one. Absolutely. Verse 5, you will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Brothers and sisters, I cannot read that. I cannot read that in Psalm 91 without thinking of the greatest deliverance of God in the Old Testament, and that was to deliver the people of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And I cannot think of this unless I think about the angel of death. You remember that? Israel's history? You remember Egypt was keeping them in bondage for over 400 years? And then there was that time through all of those massive plagues, 10 of them in total, and there was that ultimate plague where the firstborn children shall what? shall die, including Pharaoh and his firstborn, including everyone. And if you're Israel and you're asking yourself the question, well, wait a minute, what about our children? What about my firstborn? One of the most gripping horrors of all horrors is to see the death of your own child. Don't we say, I'm supposed to die First, not my child. And, and if you were to turn to Exodus chapter 12, you, you find this is, this is Israel's history in miniature. This is Psalm 91. This is 
undoubtedly what's being referred to here. And in Exodus chapter 12, this is that hideous scene and what happens to Israel's firstborn. Exodus chapter 12, verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord, the death angel, will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statue for you. This statute It's for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, this is the memorial that that they're supposed to, to enact. As he has promised, you shall keep this service, this this enactment, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Perhaps this is what Psalm 91 is referring to. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. God has your back in the night and in the day. This is security and safety. Don't ever read Psalm 91 again without thinking of these things. This is... This is God's hand of protection. Look at verse 7. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Can you imagine when God took them through that river and he delivered Israel from their enemy? And they stood on the bank on the other side, perhaps even a million of them, men, women, and children. And they looked and they saw Pharaoh and his army go under the water, never to be seen from or heard from again. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. This is is perhaps... Israel's history in miniature. And it's all with the gaze of looking at Israel's Messiah. Secondly, protection and power. Protection and power. Yes, security and safety and a trusting, ongoing trusting relationship in the person and work of Israel's Messiah, but also protection and power by being owned through the lordship of Israel's Messiah. You're being owned by Jesus Christ through his protection and power. You say, how so? Look at verse 9. Because, this is an explanation of the first eight verses, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, 
Israel's God is our God, Yahweh God, the Most High. And then he says, who is my refuge? Whoever this psalmist is, he says, and he's my refuge. Can you say that? Can you say that? I don't know what's going to happen to me and my family. But I know this, he's my refuge. He's mine, he's the Lord, he's my dwelling place, he's my shield and my buckler, he's my refuge and my fortress. Verse 10, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. Notice, notice the way that's, that's written. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. Who's in control? A sovereign God, I tell you. A sovereign, protecting, powerful God. He's the one. He's Yahweh. And if Israel comes out of that that siege of Egypt with all of the bondage and then they're, they're seeing all these ten plagues and then they see Pharaoh and his army deluged with water and killed instantly and now they're in the wilderness and perhaps this history in miniature is seen in verse 10. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. The tent dwelling of the wilderness. Perhaps that's what this is a reference to. And then, you and I, if we were on this side of the cross, reading something like this, you would say, perhaps as I did, well, that sounds to me just like 1 Peter 1.5. We who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Protected. Powerfully protected. Why? Because I'm owned by Jesus Christ. He's my Lord. I live under his lordship. No evil shall be allowed to befall you other than what the Lord is going to allow and no plague can come near your tent. Why is that? Why is it that there's no plague, no pestilence that's going to come near your tent, the place of your dwelling? Because God has his ministering angels. We don't talk a lot about angels. We don't, we don't necessarily refer to them. Most of the time, it's because we can't see them. We can't see them doing their work. But notice what verse 11 says. For he, he, Yahweh, sovereign God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And I know what some of us are going to immediately say. Well, where are they? Where are they? I can't, I can't see them. I can't know what they're doing. I can't know that they're protecting me. I can't know that they're powerfully at God's bidding to help me. That's why you and I have continual trust. You know, the world would say seeing is believing, but in the Christian life, you believe and then you see. And did you know by further revelation in the book of Hebrews, that it tells us about angels? Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 
Be careful who you invite over to the house. Could be an angel. Serve them well. Or how about Hebrews 1, verse 14? Are they not all ministering spirits, that's a reference to angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? God's sending his angels out, protecting, powerfully protecting. You and I have the protection and power of being owned by Jesus Christ and his ministering angels that he sends out according to verse 11. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways on their hands, the angels' hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And that's where we come to a place where those two verses are quoted in the New Testament. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. This is amazing. It's amazing in a number of ways. You want to talk about protection and power. You want to talk about, talk about being owned by Israel's Messiah, the lordship of the Messiah. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That is a solicitation by the devil for Jesus to do evil Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. This is where the devil comes in for the kill, or so he thinks. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, quoting out of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And then verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and here's Psalm 91, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Hmm. Quite interesting. Satan is quoting scripture. And I might add it, I might add misusing it. Jesus said to him, verse 7, again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But it is so interesting to me that Psalm 91 is quoted by the devil himself. James Hamilton, who's written a new two-volume work on the Psalms, very, very wonderful two-volume work. And he says this, quote, Satan challenges Jesus to demonstrate that he is the one to whom the Psalm 91 statements were made, end quote. Even though Satan misuses the passage or perhaps uses it as it should be, but tries to tempt Jesus to tempt God. And Jesus says no. And isn't it most interesting that at the end of this temptation narrative in Matthew 4, it says that when Jesus could not be tempted, it says God sent ministering angels to him. Wow. So interesting. To do what? 
to minister to him, to protect him, to give him power. They obviously gave him something to drink and something to eat. And his spirit revived. This is, this is an amazing parallel between Psalm 91 and Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. And certainly the point of it all is that God gives protection and power to those to whom he wills. Even his own son, the son of God, son with a capital S, David's greater son. This is amazing. And then, if that's not enough, verse 13, you, again, whoever the you is, for you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Does that remind you of anything? Well, it should. You go all the way back to Genesis 3 where it says that the serpent will bruise you on the heel speaking, I believe, of the Lord Jesus Christ but he will injure your head which means that when Jesus died on the cross and rose victoriously, Satan was ultimately and finally defeated. You say, now wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Finally defeated? He's still around, I should remind you. Yes, and he is powerless to do anything that God doesn't want him to do. He may have a long leash, but he's under control by a sovereign God. And if, if that's not enough, the idea of Jesus in Luke chapter 10 is quite amazing about his power and lordship over the demonic. In Luke chapter 10, when he sends out the 72 to go evangelize, verse 17, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. I wonder if Jesus was thinking in his mind about Psalm 91. You say, well, how can it be that way? Well, I tell you how it can be that way. There's a third and final point for our morning together, and it is this, privileges and promise. Privileges and promise, or promises of being in union with the person and work of Israel's Messiah. And this is the way Psalm 91 ends, and I tell you, it is so glorious. It is so wonderful. You can claim it. I can claim it. Israel can claim it. And the Lord Jesus Christ can claim it and God will make it so. Look at verse 14. Because he, now remember I told you, the pronouns, who's the he? Well, I mean, it could be Israel in general. It, it could be David. It, it could be some of Israel in their 
reported past. We don't know exactly, but it certainly must include the greatest Israelite of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, because he, and think of it as Christ, because it will have its ultimate fulfillment here, because he, Jesus Christ, holds fast to me, Yahweh God, the Father, in love, I, what? I will deliver him. And you know what this starts? It starts to detail seven promises, seven privileges. And what are they? Here they are. Notice all the I wills. Because he holds fast to me in love, and I love that ESV translation, holds fast, reminds me of the Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, glued to her. Because he, Jesus, holds fast to me, the Father in love, I will deliver him. I will. I will protect him because he knows my name. Not just he knows who God is, his heavenly Father, but all that God is, all the character, all the attributes. He knows me. He's in an intimate relationship with me. When He calls to me, I will answer him. I will deliver him, I will protect him, and when he calls to me, I will answer him. And do you know Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cries out, and then he's on the cross, and he says, Father, receive my spirit. Yeah, he called to me, and I answered him. I will be with him in trouble. Remember the agony of Gethsemane, the agony of the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I will be with you in trouble. God was with Israel in trouble. God is with Christians in trouble. And God was with the Lord Jesus Christ in his most ardent trouble. I will rescue him and I will honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Is that Israel? Of course it is. Some Israel, yes. Believers, most certainly. Believers in Jesus Christ, definitely. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself at the pinnacle. I mentioned a moment ago James Hamilton in his commentary. This is what he writes summarizing Psalm 91. Listen carefully. No one more epitomizes Psalm 91 than Jesus. No one lived more in God's presence, more inhabited the shelter of the Most High, the shadow of the Almighty. No one took refuge in God like Jesus, was delivered like Jesus, and trampled the serpent, the dragon like Jesus. No one loved God or knew God's name like Jesus. No one called on God like Jesus, experienced God's presence in distress like Jesus, or was delivered even from death like Jesus. No one will be more glorified by God than Jesus, who has received the name above every name, and no one will be more satisfied than Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything stated in Psalm 91. And then, how does it apply to you and To me. He doesn't leave us out. James Hamilton says this, because Jesus lived out the fullness of this psalm, his people can take up their crosses and follow him. 
His people can inhabit the hiding place, the shadow of the Most High, entering boldly to find grace in time of need. Those who belong to Jesus can take refuge in God, experience God's deliverance, and God will soon crush Satan under their feet. When they have been delivered, they will be glorified, satisfied with long life as they behold God's salvation. So as we close this morning, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Do you trust him all the days of your life? You say, no, I need him. I need him right now. Trust him today. And trust him for every day thereafter. Trust in him. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. Ask him to give you salvation, deliverance. It's, it's all over Psalm 91. I will deliver him, verse 14. I'll protect him. I'll answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I'll rescue him. I'll honor him. And I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You can say that too. All those privileges can be yours in Jesus Christ. And you can be privileged to receive such promises promises of that covenant in 2 Samuel, the promises of deliverance, the promises of salvation in Jesus Christ, if you would but repent and here at Christmas believe what most say is unbelievable. Rebecca McLaughlin writes concludingly so very well. She says, and so about 33 years after his birth in Bethlehem, Jesus died on a cross just outside Jerusalem. On the face of it, it was the religious leaders and Roman authorities who planned to have him crucified. But Jesus planned it too. On the cross, he sacrificed himself to save us from the judgment we deserve. Jesus, the one person in history whose thoughts and words and deeds were only good willingly took the punishment for every evil thought and word and deed that's ever gushed out of my heart or yours. But Jesus' death was not the end of the story. Three days later, his tomb was empty and Jesus himself appeared to his followers alive. Jesus was raised to life once and for all. He faced death to defeat it. He paid for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. He is the great doctor who came for those who know they're sick and gave his life to make us well. He knows our secret thoughts and deepest shame, and yet he loves us. All the way to death and back again. He is Emmanuel, or God with us. And all we have to do is trust in him. Do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. So we end where we first began. Is Christmas unbelievable? It is absolutely believable. With the eyes of faith fixed firmly upon the person and work of Israel's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh, my heavenly Father, 
please open the hearts and minds of anyone here who doesn't know this incomparable Savior. Have them speak to me or someone else who may have come with them. Give them eternal life. Grant them the joy of knowing security and safety. To have the sense of knowing that you are alive, risen from the dead, and you can bring the safety and security, the protection and power, the privileges and promises to bear upon their life. May you do what you sovereignly will do. And may there be peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We love you, Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would be honored as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. No wonder Christmas is believable. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.